0: The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. Last week, we looked at kind of the before the birth of Samson, and it's an interesting jump. Again, we go from before Samson's birth, and then we get a little tidbit about him being born in verse 24 and verse 25, and God Uh, his spirit coming upon him, and it's like this great introduction, and we think, boy, this is going to be the greatest judge of the book of Judges because you look at this introduction to him, how he's conceived and his parents and this vow, and you think, boy, this is going to be a mighty man of God. And then you get into chapter 14, and it's like the biggest letdown because this may be the worst judge in all of the book that we've studied so far as it is the last judge And instead of what we would assume would happen and come from the great benefits and advantages of the gifts that God is giving to uh, Samson, we find by far the most flawed character in the book. He's violent, he's impulsive, he's sexually addicted, he's emotionally immature, and he's a selfish man and most disturbing of all, I don't know about you as you read this, but the Bible says the spirit of God seems to anoint and use his fits. His impulses, uh, these uh, lashing out in anger, in pride, and in temper. And before this happens, it seems like every time the Bible says the Spirit of God comes on him and he does these horrible things. Uh, He does things that are just seem to be out of his own impulses, his own flesh. And uh, today we're going to focus kind of on uh, the difference in the Christian life between gifts and fruit. And by the way, there is a difference. Gifts... Uh, In fruit. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, just to kind of reference, if you want to go back and look at it, Paul talks about those differences and he mentions uh, that if I have all the gifts, the spiritual gifts, but I don't have love, which is a spiritual fruit, he says I'm nothing. In other words, spiritual gifts without spiritual fruit makes our spiritual gift unprofitable. It makes our spiritual uh, gift unprofitable. Uh, not fulfill the purpose for which God gives us spiritual giftedness. And so as we look at Samson and we kind of go into chapter 14, we see a man that is driven by the flesh. The main points in your worship guide are going to come towards the end of the message, but I want to kind of look at this together. But this is a man driven by the flesh. And so Samson's now a grown man, chapter 14 He's stirred at the end of chapter 13 by the Spirit of the Lord, but at the start of chapter 14 and throughout the rest of his life, he is stirred by a much more worldly impulse, his own flesh. And the Bible says in verse number 1 that it just kind of jumps into a day in the life of Samson. And so this is a typical Samson day. This is how Samson is living his life. This is the character of his life. And so just in a day of Samson's life, he is... um, he is uh, he's going down to timnah and he sees a young philistine woman and returning home he says literally to his parents this is what he comes home he says i saw a girl that i want go get her for me i mean it's literally what he does he he sees a girl he wants the girl he tells his parents go get the girl for me this is the one that i want and by the way that's kind of an odd request for us in our culture because it doesn't work that way but in samson's culture the father is the one that chose the daughter for the son, and they would typically arrange that marriage. And and but Samson here, he's driven by his impulse. He's driven by his sight. He's driven by his lust. I would imagine this is the girl that uh, he he sees with his eyes. I mean, I don't know how he could select her other than just obviously what he is driven by his own flesh. He sees a girl. It's all outward. It's what he sees that he likes. And he wants her for himself. And so his parents, they remember the angel's prediction. Samson is going to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And that's not the kind of thing you would forget. How Samson, the angel of the Lord, appears before Manoah and his wife and tells them about how their son is going to be a great judge and deliverer of Israel. And then Samson, he's living by impulse. He's living by the flesh. He must be in their own mind thinking, Did God give the, the message to the wrong family? Did God tell us, and he meant someone else, has, has somehow what God has promised, has, is it not going to be fulfilled? Is it not going to come to pass? And uh, they protest here in verse number 3. They say, can't you find a woman from the wider family, or at least in Israel, whom you could marry? He says, "Do you got to go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife. And the uncircumcised uh, word here is key. Circumcision was a sign that a family was in a personal covenant or relationship with God and as part of his people. This issue here that uh, Samson's parents have with uh, Samson's choice is not uh, a racial one. This is a spiritual one. This uh, uncircumcision was a mark of a covenant relationship with God. So he's not talking about you shouldn't marry someone of another race. They're talking about something you shouldn't marry someone that is not following the Lord, that is not wholly dedicated to the Lord. And it's about a marriage with somebody outside of the Lord's covenant. And so God's prohibition in Exodus 34 is not against interracial marriage, but against interfaith marriage. And I think that's an important note for us to make because a lot of times traditionally in religious culture and history, there's been a lot of discussion around the, uh, the biblical, uh, uh, biblical prohibition of interracial marriage, and that is not what the Bible teaches at all. That's something that we need to stand up and, and, and say because I think it's something that needs to be corrected in our past. But uh, for instance, I'll give you a, a, a biblical uh, uh, illustration of this. Moses was married to a non-Israelite, a Zipporah, but she was one, Exodus 4, who recognized God's covenant relationship. And so God didn't say or object to his marriage uh, to Zipporah. But Samson's not willing to listen. He says in verse number three, he says, get her for me. He he says, notice this. Uh, Look at, pick up verse number three. Notice his words. He says, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. This goes with the theme of how the book is going to close. In other words, he's saying this. She is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. Remember what we talked about, that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord? But Everybody in Israel was doing that which was right in their own eyes. And this is what's happening. This is being illustrated through the life of Samson. A person who is doing right in their own eyes, but doing wickedly in God's eyes. And the question we asked last week is whose eyes matter? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Whose judgment matters, our own judgment or God's judgment? How do we determine what is sin? How do we determine what is wrong? Do we determine that by our feelings, by our own eyes, by our own thoughts, by our culture, by what's popular. How many know are many popular things in our culture that are just not right? There are many popular things in our culture that are just not right. Uh, so we can't go by popularity. We can't by, go by culture. God forbid that we in the church sh- should start to judge what is right and wrong on the basis of how we think and feel. And so he is living by this impulsive Fleshly life, doing what is right in his own eyes. So he says, Get her for me. She's right in my eyes. And so Samson's a leader who reflects Israel's real spiritual state. Often I'll say this those that lead a country often are a mirror of that country, not, not, the, not the, uh, the thermostat, but rather the thermometer. Not the, not the controller of what's going on in the nation, but often the reflection of what's going on in the nation. That's often what happens. In a nation, we choose leaders that have the same kind of character that we do. We choose leaders that are driven by the same impulses that we are. And so a lot of times that's what happens. It's a reflection of leadership. Often we look to uh, Washington, D.C. often to, to be more like the thermostat of our country when really it's more the thermometer. It more says what we are as a nation. It more depicts who we are as a nation. We say, well, that's not me, but that is as a whole what we see happening in our nation and so Samson's a leader he reflects Israel's real spiritual state rather than God's ideal for his people and what we see in a man that is driven by the flesh is firstly that the flesh is impulsive how many understand that in your own flesh your flesh is impulsive have you ever made an impulse buy boy stores set us up even more for that my wife loves to go to TJ Maxx she goes there too much that's usually my question at the end of the week. How many times do you go to TJ Maxx this week? And if you go to TJ Maxx, you know what it's like. They bring you through this maze corral of, at the end of, all these little things that you just have to have. I mean, you look, and it's amazing how you even get to the cash register. I mean, there's so many things to look at and touch and play with, and it's so attractive. It just draws you right in. And, you know, you're, you know, before I find myself waiting in line, because I go, I don't know about you guys, I go in there and get what I need to get. I try not to go in there, but I, if I have to go in there, I get what I need to get and then get out of there. And usually there's people in front of me in line, and they're playing with the stuff. And I'm just like, Can, you, you're going to go to the next register? Or, you know, you still shopping here or, or what? You know, it's like, I'm just trying to get out, you know. And so, you know, how many know that that is our flesh? Our flesh is driven and run by impulse. We make impulse buys. How many have things in your attic, in your garage, in your basement that are the products of impulse buys? You know, you go to a garage sale, there's a lot of impulse buy product out there uh, in that garage sale. People tend to think they need things that they don't need, desire things that that they don't need, but it's amazing how the flesh is fickle and tends to be driven only by our impulses. And so here he is driven by his impulse. The other uh, mark of the flesh is that the flesh is unteachable. The flesh is unteachable. Notice he's going against the wiser counsel of his parents. He's not heeding their counsel. He's not even listening to what they have to say because the flesh, which what Paul ultimately says, it profits nothing. The flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh is impulsive. The flesh is unteachable. In other words, the Bible says a fool despises wisdom and instruction. Can we say this? The flesh is just foolish, isn't it? It it, it is unteachable. You know, I understand in my own life, in the areas of my life where I am unteachable are the areas of my life that are driven by my flesh. Are you with me? The areas of my life where I am unteachable are the areas of my life that are driven by my flesh. The spiritual sides of our life, the Spirit is the one that is led by the Holy Spirit of God that lives in the life, resides in the life of a Christian. But when a Christian is unteachable... Like, I, I can't learn anything. I don't learn anything. I'm not going to get anything from anybody else. You know, this whole it's just God in me mentality and nobody else can teach me, that is a foolish way to live your life. God puts people in our lives. He puts spiritual authorities in our lives. He puts people around us. He puts one another in each other's lives on purpose to check us and to check our flesh. And how many know that you need people in your life that are like that? people like Samson's parents that are going to say, no, you shouldn't do this. No, this is not wise. Hey, this is a foolish decision that you're about to make, and you shouldn't make it. How many are thankful if you had parents like that? You had, how many are thankful for that? That you had parents that stood in the way and said no to you, And some of you that didn't have parents like that, boy, we need to learn from the instruction that the Bible gives to parents that says we need to train our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, which means we need to train them in the wisdom of the law of God, which says no to things that are sinful, that resist uh, the impulses of the flesh. How many know the flesh is hard to control? And so we see Samson eventually becoming someone that is completely out of control in his life, and he's not a good example. He's not a good example for anyone to follow. He's driven by the flesh. And then I think there's something that we need to to mention as we look at this, and that is the subject of being unequally yoked. Because the Bible is touching on, just here in the text, a, a, a principle that he gives. And while this will be a brief diversion, I want you to think about it for a second as to why the Bible commands believers not to enter unequal marriages. Exodus 34 tells Israel neither to make a treaty with those that lived in a land who don't know the Lord or to choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons. Why? Because such binding partnerships, whether at a national or a family level, will cause Israel to join their allies' wives as they prostitute themselves to their gods. Verse 16. That's what he tells them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul renews the appeal to New Testament believers not about Jews and Gentiles not marrying, but he gives us the spiritual underlying truth of what God is teaching the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that is, he uses the word, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The word "yoke" probably means several kinds of binding relationships. It must um, apply to marriage, but it it really is binding in in many different human relationships. It's not just talking about marriage. Be not unequally yoked together with, with unbelievers. Here is in Exodus the main issue is that such marriages weaken a believer's loyalty to God. In verse sixteen of Second Corinthians chapter six, he says, "What agreement is there between the temple of God, which you are, and with idols?" He says, "You're not going to have agreement. You're not going to have uh, be able to walk together." And so as we read Paul's statement, it might uh, lead us to conclude that the Bible is concerned that the unbelieving spouse will try to convert the believer. So sometimes people say, that's no problem for me, I can marry someone because they uh, completely respect my faith, they will allow me total freedom to practice it, but I, I would cause you to think about the command here and why it's given because the context for each of these texts is not other former religions, but it's idolatry. And idolatry is displacing God by making good, created things more important than God. Think about that, because that is the issue in Israel. It's idolatry. And so when your spouse doesn't share your faith, and this is, by the way, if you're single this morning, you've never been married, if you're a young person, you ought to listen to this. When your spouse doesn't share your faith, there's great pressure to adapt to what? By pushing God more to the margins of your life and not, not including God in the daily parts of your life as you need to, and you're in an intimate relationship with someone who doesn't understand what should be the very mainspring of and motivation for everything that you do. And the natural response to this is to make God less central to everything because you love that person that you're in a relationship with. But Let me just say this. as The Bible urges believers not to knowingly marry an unbeliever. We should remember, however, that Paul insists that a Christian who is already married to a non-Christian, should not seek divorce from him or her, but should actively seek to build a good marriage. And that it's possible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. And so if you find yourself unequally yoked in a marriage, you're not supposed to seek to get out of that marriage. You're supposed to seek to be a blessing to the person that you're in the marriage with. And while there are going to be difficulties as you go through that, you ought to pray for your spouse's salvation. I know many of you that are in this room do that. And, you know, that's something that the the church, as we encourage one another, lift one another up, it's difficult when a house is divided against itself. It's difficult, but I'm going to tell you, the grace of God is not impossible. How many know that God can save anybody? God can change anybody. God can redeem and restore anybody. And that's important for us to look at. Let's look at next what Israel doesn't do. This is an important thing for us to note as we kind of progress past uh, verse 5, we're going to spend a little bit of time here, and then I want you to uh, look. But what does Israel, what, what Israel doesn't do in this situation, Samson is not going to be the judge that we're hoping for. We already know that, right? We get into his life, and we're like, this is not the chapter 13 promise of this great deliverer that's going to come and, and rescue Israel. Othniel fought Israel's enemies. Uh, he married a godly, faithful, trusting Israelite. And the last Samson... Judge The last judge, Samson, goes among Israel's enemies in order to marry an unnamed Philistine who does not know God. It's important here that he found her in Timnah. This is deep in Israelite territory. I hope that you recognize the geography and why God is saying this. Isn't it interesting that the enemies of God are in the middle of the camp? The enemies of God are deep in Israelite territory. Where at once they dwelt in the borders and surrounded Israel, they are now in the midst of them. So this tells us where Israel is. Israel has now allowed idolatrous culture to inundate them in such a way that they are comfortable with living among idolaters. They are comfortable with living with idolaters in the center of their lives, that these are people that they eat with, fellowship with, their neighbors, people they see every day, people that they commingle with, people that they co-marry with. And this is what we're seeing God was saying was not to happen, but now is happening. And this brings us to what Israel is not doing. How many remember in the cycle after judgment, what came? Repentance. What is Israel not doing? They're not repenting. They're not even thinking that they're being oppressed. They're in slavery and they like it. Are you with me? They're in slavery and they like it. They are enjoying living like the Philistines. They are enjoying the benefits as what they see as living in the world like the world. Not any different from the world. Can we remind ourselves that God has called us as believers out of darkness into light? That He has made us a peculiar people and that peculiarity is so much more about what the Holy Spirit does inside of us which works its way outside than our religious actions. In other words, Uh, We shouldn't be walking from our houses this morning, looking down on our neighbors who are watering their gardens and going to the soccer games and saying, "Oh, I'm going to church, I'm so much better than all my neighbors, look at me. That's not supposed to be how we're salt and light in our community. But by God's grace, we're supposed to live godly and soberly and righteously in the present world that we live in, knowing that we live in a world that is dominated by the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, and the spirit that works in the children of disobedience is all around us. Listen, I don't care how conservative America gets. It's not, it's not this, we're not living in a nation that loves God. It doesn't matter how conservative we get. Uh, we're, we're, sometimes Christians, they confuse moral conservatism with living a Christian life. Some, sometimes people confuse political alignments with walking with God. And it becomes a, a, an identity tag that replaces even their Christian identity tag. And we're bearing the reproach of our political party rather than bearing the reproach of Christ. And we, we think about that sometimes as being co-equal, but they're not co-equal. God doesn't share His glory or His identity with anyone. And so while we may have different political views and alignments, even presently as we gather and worship together, we all come under the banner of the cross And the authority of the word, and we say, listen, what we do and how we live, and what God says is right and wrong, comes from the scriptures, not from our politics. It doesn't come from a lesser place. It comes from the authority, God's authority. And so Israel's not cried out for rescue from oppression. There's no resistance to their enslavement. Later on in the narrative, the men of Judah, who had been first to go up to fight in their land, simply take it as a fact that for chapter 15, verse 11 The Philistines are rulers over us. That's just the way that it is. The people are virtually unconscious of their enslavement because it's a natural, it, 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 its nature is that of cultural accommodation. That's a natural response. Israelites don't groan or resist their captors now because they have completely adopted and adapted to the values, the moors, and the idols of the Philistines. And like Samson himself, what's going on? The Israelites are eager to marry the Philistine society probably as a way to move up in the culture. Uh, That's the way of being recognized or moving up in the culture. Now the identifiable mark is not being the people of God. It's being the people that are popular. And the Israelites no longer had a recognizable culture of their own that was based on service to the Lord. Michael Wilcox says this in the message of Judges. He says, there's no such thing as a harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. I want you to think about that. There is, is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For, there is no, uh, for where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. That's important for us to take note of because there, I think there are examples that we can look at even in the church. But we've got to move on for sake of time. But I want you to think about this little note here. And it's a major part in the shift of chapter number 14, and that is this, working through sin. Here's a big question. Can God work through sinful people? Can God work through sinful people? Can God work through sinful flesh? The answer is yes. Uh, He's going to give us the greatest example of this, or one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible, in the life of Samson. Because God is going to use Samson. And that ought to put a footnote in our lives of this. One, that God does not use us because we are worthy to be used. God doesn't use us because somehow we have exalted ourselves to a level of approval with God, and now God can use us. I I hear somewhat this kind of announced to even a lot of our young people, in that if you will live some kind of life that is approved that God will use you. Now, let me say this. God does want to use instruments that are given over to righteousness, and there are great consequences to living lives of sin, and we see that in the life of Samson. But that should not draw us to conclude that God uses righteous people, but yet that God in His grace does His will regardless of whether the people obey or don't. Can I help you? If the generation doesn't obey God, God's will still will be done. Some of us, we make whether the will of God is done up to us. Let me just say this. If I fail, God will raise up another. Are you with me? The job is not mine alone to accomplish the will of God. It is by God's grace that He might use any of us. And at the end of the day, He is not using any one of us Because we are somehow some perfect example. It is by God's grace that he uses us. Can God work through sin? We ought to say thank God that he can. Because if he's working through you, he is working through sin. Are you with me? If he is working through you, then he is working through sin. God forbid that we should think, well, God's working through me because I've overcome my sins. Really? Have you overcome your sins or have you overcome more your socially unacceptable sins? So I gave up this and I gave up that, these habits that are socially unacceptable within the church. I don't do that anymore. But ha- have you really overcome your sins or have you overcome your socially unacceptable sins? God is If God is working through us, he's working through sin. And th- there is no question about this because, look, let me give you the, 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 the text proof. Look at verse number four. But his father and his mother knew not that it was... Of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines. What was of the Lord? Samson's choice of a wife. What? This was of the Lord? God is allowing Samson to make these impulsive choices. Why? Because he's seeking to have an advantage of drawing a division between the people of God and Israel. He knows Samson. God knows you and he knows me. And he knows what's going to happen. Samson's going to choose a wife of his impulse. The wife is going to treat him the way his flesh treats him. Notice what his wife does later in the chapter. She cries, tell me the riddle. Why? So she can save herself. She doesn't care about Samson. She doesn't love Samson. She loves herself. And she is willing to give up Samson's life to save her own. Is that love? Isn't love self-sacrificial? We don't say to the people we love, hey, I'm willing for you to die for me. We say, I'm willing to die for you. That's what we say to the people that we love, truly that we love, and we see that example in Christ. But here, here's the case of, and by the way, this continues in the women that he chooses, doesn't it? Deli- Delilah is, is worse. And here is a woman who is willing to g- gain and glean this information to leak this information to his enemies so that they can have advantage over him. And later on, what happens? Verse number 20, Samson's wife is given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. Well, that's that's a big picture of how Samson treated his friends. He used his friends and they used him. He used people for the impulses of his flesh and they ended up using him. Isn't that what the flesh does? The flesh uses people. The flesh uses people. Well, that's how we can see if we're, we're operating the flesh or the spirit. Are we here to use one another or to love one another? Are we here to use one another to glean from what we can get from one another or to serve one another? Are we here to get or are we here to give? And interesting how people look at the relationship with the church. First, we view the church wrong. We think the church is a building, a religious organization, so we don't view it as a family. A family is something that we're part of that we're born into, Right? That's why God has cleared the church as a family. You're born into the church. You're not brought into the church. You don't buy into the church. You don't act your way into the church. You can't buy. It's not not a country club. It's something you're born into. You're born into the family of God. And then once you become part of the family of God, you become a a part of a group of brothers and sisters who will sin against you. But what does a family do? Well, some of us have learned wrong from our fleshly families because... When your family sins against you, you cut them off. You don't talk to them. You shun them. You you throw a temper tantrum. You, You know, they're no longer, you know, invited to the party. They can't come over to the house anymore. That's not what family's supposed to do. A family recognizes that we're going to hurt each other, but that we are going to forgive and love each other regardless of what happens. That we are going to serve one another, that we're going to love and forgive. And that's why in the church... That should be our first knee-jerk reaction. Oh, somebody wronged me? I don't want to be around them anymore. No, someone wronged me? I need to love them. I need to forgive them. Not not remove myself from them. Our job as a family is is to act like the family of God. The way Christ treats us. Aren't you glad that Christ doesn't leave you when you offend Him? How many of you offended Jesus this week? Are you recognizing that you have... Boy, some of us need to go to Psalm 51, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. God, I sin against you. I offend you. And God, you come to me when I offend you. And interesting that we have the reverse. Matthew 18 tells us to go to the person that offended us. God comes to us when we offend him. But when we get offended by someone, we're waiting for that person to come and say they're sorry. What does God say? If you're offended by someone, you need to go to that person with a desire to restore your relationship with that person, to remove that offense, and to seek out forgiveness. That's our job. And then he says, endeavor, be disciplined to, be diligent to, to keep unity, and the only way we're going to do that is we work hard at this. Are you with me? So it's a commitment. It's not, I can come, I can go, I can see you as I please and not see you as I please. No, I'm in a family with you. I'm obligated to love you and to forgive you and to be kind to you, and it's not an option. I don't go look for another family. I I, I want to reunite with uh, the people that offend me. That's hard to do, isn't it? And if you're operating the flesh, you're going to see what the result of that is, and that is constantly having to be always in the position of being offended and hurt. And bitterness comes as a result. But for, verse 14, 4 is a crucial verse in the Samson narrative and the key to really understanding what is going on here. His parents didn't know that this, what God was doing, was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines because God will use the very weaknesses of our flesh. Samson's fraternization with the Philistines, his sexual appetite, his vindictiveness and temper to bring about confrontation between two Enemies, and that is the world and the people of God. Samson's weakness results in a blood feud. It leads to more and more conflict. Again, Michael Wilcox says this, the force of 14.4 is that two communities are so interlocked that even the Lord can find nothing to get a hold of to pry them apart, so he uses Samson's weaknesses to bring about the relationship with this irresistible girl from which so much ill feeling is going to flow To bring a war where there should be a war. How many know there should be a war between sin and our spirit? There should be a war. should be a battle. When we accept it, when we allow it, when we allow it to reign in our bodies, God sometimes allows things, even our own weaknesses, to cause a war once again. You know, God doesn't let the world love the church very long, does he? We have periods of time where the world loves Christians. But it's, it's fickle. It's short-lived. People get all, you know, wow, people are like, you know, they're, they're okay with us talking about God and our Christianity and stuff. The world is embracing, you know, Christians. Not for long. Not for long. The world does not embrace Christianity for long. For as soon as it offends them, they will attack it to remove it. They're intolerant of anything that questions the impulses of their flesh. And God allows even our own sinfulness as Christians to cause that warfare once again in our lives. And that brings us to this this lion, this bet, this woman that he makes, this riddle that he gives. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes. How can God use flawed people, people like Samson, to get his work done? Shouldn't he only work with people who are good? Shouldn't he only work with godly men and women? Shouldn't he only use the people who might have the right beliefs and the right behavior? The problem with this is it puts God in a box It would mean that he is limited by humans. He is only allowed to work when he has workable people to work with. How many know that God is not limited by us? God is not limited by our behavior, nor our responses, nor our obedience. But don't get me wrong. Obedience brings blessing to the Christian life, and sinfulness and carnality brings great consequences, and the Lord's chastening if you're a Christian. David Jackman describes how Judges shoots holes through all of the thinking that we think that God only uses certain individuals when he says this It's above all a book about grace, undeserved mercy, as the whole Bible. That is not to play down theological accuracy or to pretend it doesn't matter how we behave. We still suffer from our sins. But we can rejoice that he is also in the business of using our failures as the foundations for his successes. Let us never imagine. That we have God taped. Or that we know how he will work or when. For as soon as we start to say God cannot or will not until we are wrong footed. We're coming from the wrong place. God can. Are you with me? Say it church. God can. He can. He can can make a stream in the desert. He, he, He can do anything. God is able. And it is not us that determines God's ability. God is able, regardless of whether he finds a holy, righteous tool to work with. Lastly, as we're looking at this gift and fruit growing, let me just call your attention to this. As God is working through sin, we also see here that the biblical, there's a biblical distinction between gifts and fruit. I mentioned uh, it, but Samson's gifted by the Spirit in a remarkable way. What does he do? He kills a thousand armed men with a jawbone. That's that's no small feat. Samson has God's spirit, doesn't he? So should we not see him growing in holiness? If Samson has God's spirit, why is he not growing in holiness? Why is he not growing in righteousness? How can he be so empowered by the spirit yet show no patience, humility, or self-control? How does he have gifts without fruit? It's a good question, isn't it? The Bible has always made a distinction that most believers are often unaware of, and that is this, that it is possible to have the gifts of the Spirit and lack in the fruit of the Spirit. It is possible to have the gifts of the Spirit yet lack in the fruit of the Spirit. You say, what does that even mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul tells us that the gifts of the Spirit are for doing. If you, if you study 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about the gifts, Abilities for serving and helping people, though they can be used for other ends too. And he, he talks about those gifts. And then Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is the character traits of being. And so the gifts are for doing and the character, the fruit, is for being. Qualities like peace and patience, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's what God says is the fruit of the Spirit. But right in the middle, and we mentioned this at the beginning, between chapters 12 and 14 where Paul talks about the gifts, he talks about an important thing in 1 Corinthians 13 to a church that was using its gifts but not producing spiritual fruit. The Corinthian church was a perfect example of a church that was driven by the flesh, that was carnal in their Christianity, that was exhibiting great gifts of the Spirit, but showing very little fruit of the Spirit. What does he give us? Well, he gives us that chapter we read at a lot of weddings, right? It's amazing because people read this at weddings and they don't understand the context. The context is not that God is saying to the Corinthian church, how great you are at loving each other. The context is that he's saying to the Corinthian church, you are terrible at love. And he gives us 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, you guys don't love each other. That, that is the context. He, he, says, he says that it's possible to have skills and gifts and teaching and speaking and leadership, but lack the fruit of love with which gifts are worth nothing. That's what he says. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity i become like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I give, my, I give all my gifts to the poor, though I give my body to be burned, it's all about doing, doing, doing. That's what the gifts are for, right? But I don't have charity. I'm not being what God saved me to be, but I'm doing, I'm acting, I'm outwardly doing things, but inwardly the fruit of the Spirit is not being present in my life because I'm impulsively living my life in carnality. Incarnality. So we at times in Scripture come across men and women like Samson who have great gifts but seem very shallow in holiness and character, yet they're Christians. He says the gifts of the Holy Spirit can operate in us even mightily and we can be helping people and leading movements, yet our inner personal lives can still be a complete wreck. How many know this? You can serve God outwardly and be a complete wreck inwardly. Are you with me? This is to the leadership of the church. This is to people who serve, that other people see. This is to us who are active in helping people in our community. Listen, are you with me? You can use your giftedness, but ignore the fruit. You could outwardly be doing while inwardly decaying. That's why the Bible talks about the Spirit's desire to renew the inner man day by day. How many know that what is most important is the backstage of our life? I'll tell you, in any production, the backstage is more important than the front stage. If the backstage falls apart, the front stage can do nothing. There are no performances on the front stage if the backstage doesn't go well. All the people that we don't see, all the things that we don't see, all, all the works that are going on behind the scenes, if those things fall apart, nothing can happen in the front. It all falls apart. Listen, you can, on the front stage of your life, be perceived as someone who's doing something powerfully in giftedness by people. But before long, if the backstage is out of control, the front stage is going. And this is what happens. It happens in in spiritual leaders where, where people in the church will say, I have no idea how that pastor ended up here. How is he disqualified? Where did that come from? It's like it came out of nowhere. Can I say this? It didn't come out of nowhere. It started with the things that you can't see coming apart. It started with the prayer life. It started with the time with God. It started with accountability and relationship with God. You can still do those outward giftedness things and even have the Spirit of God empower you because He loves. Listen, what I understand this morning is God can use me to preach a message because He loves His church. But it doesn't mean that my life is all put together. Are you with me? That is a sobering thought, that just because God has gifted me to preach and teach His Word doesn't mean that I should quantify that my spiritual life is healthy. It should not be the litmus test for health towards those that use giftedness for God. And that's something we need to recognize, the biblical distinction between gifts and fruits. Because, really, as you think about it, many look at their spiritual gifts as self-justifying proof that they are fine spiritually. Listen, I've done it. I've done it. I'm unhealthy inwardly, but I preached a message on Sunday and God used it, so that must mean I'm fine. No. It doesn't mean I'm fine. It doesn't. This should not be the proof of my spiritual health. What happens on the stages of our lives is not proof of our health. Are you with me? So many look at spiritual gifts as a self-justifying proof. Before long, what were the Corinthians doing? They were using their gifts to devour each other. They were using their gifts. They were putting them on display. Before long, even something as sacred as observing the Lord's table was all about their flesh. And it was popular. And everybody was okay with it. It was part of their church culture. Church, may that not be so of us. Yes, we should use our spiritual giftedness, but not at the expense of spiritual fruitfulness not at the expense of spiritual fruitfulness. And before long, listen, having spiritual fruit does mean that you will use your giftedness. Are you with me? Because some people say, well, I have spiritual fruit just because I don't serve in the church doesn't mean I don't have spiritual fruit. Listen, I understand that one doesn't uh, cancel out the other, but it's the same way the other way around. Just because you're, listen, if you're producing spiritual fruit, it means you're serving. There is is an outward uh, effect to what's happening in your life. And then secondly, as we look at this, many look at their spiritual gifts as self-justifying proof that they are spiritual, but fruit is the proof of spiritual growth. Fruit is the proof of spiritual growth. I'm trying to practically apply something this morning that we see in the life of Samson to us that we can come away with. Are you with me today? Fruit is the proof of spiritual growth. Do you have fruit in your life? A lot of times what we lead with is our gifts, right? Well, I have gifts. I have talents. I have abilities. I can speak. I can teach. I can sing. I can serve. I can give. I'm compassionate. I'm, I do this. I do that. And it's all about doing, 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 doing. But what about your being? What about your being? Fruit is the proof of spiritual growth. If you're growing spiritually, you will be producing love, joy, peace, Listen, how many many of you ever served God without joy? I've done it many times. Serve God without joy. It is not satisfying. It's satisfying as long as the flesh is on display. But after that, it is not satisfying. Listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We need the joy. We need the fruit of the Spirit being produced in our lives. And listen, that is what spiritual maturity is. And sometimes what happens in the context of the church, because it's all gathering and services and outward stuff, we forget that and we flip it over. And we focus so heavily on doing, 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 and not being. Be who God calls you to be by daily communing with Him, letting Him produce His character in you so that He can use your giftedness to His glory and not to yours. Secondly, when it comes to our lives, we need to understand this. Fruit is a proof, but the best indicator of spiritual health is prayer. The best indicator of spiritual health is prayer. You say, how can you say that? In any relationship, the best indicator of health is communication. Are you with me? In any relationship, human or spiritual, the best indicator of health is communication. There are a lot of couples who think they have healthy relationships and they don't talk. How can you have a healthy relationship without talking? You can't, it's impossible. By the way, how did you build your relationship to begin with? Talking. How is your relationship sustained? Talking. How will your relationship come apart? Not talking. You want to see two individuals come apart? Listen, they go their separate ways. They do their separate things. They have their separate activities. They sit in separate rooms, sleep in separate beds. Go and sit. Listen, it's separate, separate, alone, alone, alone. And Before long, listen, this is the life between a Christian who's using their giftedness and their Savior who died for them. I'm serving you, God, but I don't really want to be around you. I don't really want to talk to you want to have to communicate with you. It costs me too much in my personal life. And, And listen, prayer, without prayer, we can't do anything. Are you with me? But the church is anemic in its prayer life. You say, how can you say that? Look at the prayer meetings in churches. Most churches don't have them. And when they do have them, they're not really prayer meetings. And listen, before long, it's like, if we prayed for a minute, we're just, we're so... We're so wore out. We can't do it anymore. We need to get to some activity that's more important. Is there an activity that is more important in your life than talking to God? Communing with God? I mean, it's so important to our life, yet it's such a hardship in our life. How many like me struggle in your prayer life? We struggle. Listen, I find it far easier to study the Bible than to pray. I enjoy study. I like to read. I read books. I read the Bible. I like to study. I like to get uh, the knowledge. I like to understand things. I like to break things down. I like to figure things out. That's me. That may not be you, but I'm telling you, most of us, if not all of us, struggle in our prayer life. And it is the best indicator of our spiritual health. Not your gifts. Not how well you sing. Not how well you preach. Not how much you do. Your Spiritual health indicator is your prayer life. So let me ask you a question, me to self: How you doing? Many of us, if we squeeze out a prayer before we, if we can remember before a meal. Listen, are you with me? Now I lay me down to sleep, or God, get me out of this situation. The nine-one-one calls to God. Is that communion? Would you want to be in a relationship with someone who only talked to you when they needed something from you? Don't we owe God more than that? Shouldn't we desire more than that? Shouldn't we be deeper than that? Is prayer warm, enjoyable, consistent? Because in a healthy spirit, prayer is warm, enjoyable, consistent. Pray without ceasing. Listen, in a healthy relationship, communication is warm, enjoyable, consistent. Consistent. How do I know if my relationship with my wife is not healthy? When my communication is cold, when it's distant, when it's infrequent, when it's harsh, when it's rude, when it's crude, that is an indicator of the lack of health in your marriage relationship. It's an indicator of your lack of health in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Listen, Samson was not communing with God. Samson was communing with his flesh. Samson called out to God several times in the passages, and it's only, God, give me what I want. God, give me what I desire. And that kind of brings us to the the second part. In a healthy spirit, prayer is warm, enjoyable, and consistent, but praying as a last resort or praying that is continually about yourself and your desires is immature and unhealthy. Praying as a last resort or praying that's continually about yourself and your desires is immature and healthy. Listen, I, I, I'm afraid that even the church today is failing to worship God. We love to sing songs that are about how we feel, but we don't live, love to sing songs about the character and nature of God. Those become boring to us. I love to sing songs about, I feel this way, I want this, I desire this, and I'm questioning this, and I'm having problems with this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. And every song is about me and how I feel. And that's a hit in the world. Are you with me? In the world, a hit is a song about how you feel, what you're going through, and that's whether it's relevant or connects. But a hit in the kingdom of God is a song about the nature of our God, the truth about who God is and bringing our hearts to a place where it's not about whether our flesh connects with it, but that our desire is to worship our holy, righteous, unshakable, unchangeable God. And We struggle with that because it's not about us. That's why we, we sing, we want our music to be theologically sound. We want them to be about God, not so much about us. Yes, there's an intersection there. But come on, are you with me? Carnal Christians want to want to focus on themselves. They want to focus on the impulses, and in their praying, it's last resort. Did you pray about it? No. Did you tell everybody else about it? Yes. It's always about me, what I want, how I feel, but it should be about God. How many of you know we need God to change our feelings, to change our desires. We are fickle. We go, we, we go from one emotion to the next in a moment. And then lastly today, and we're done. When you think about a believer, there's the believer's need for community. This is something we see on display in the life of Samson. Samson is a Lone Ranger Christian. Samson is the Lone Ranger Christian. It's just me, and God sometimes... It's just me, I don't need the church, I don't need other believers, I don't, that's just a nice thing that I do sometimes. But the truth is, in the Christian life, there's a believer's need for community. We need each other. Intimate fellowship is the best way to ensure the integrity of our inward and outward lives. That's why, listen, we don't have life groups because it's cool, we don't have life groups because we need to fill our time with other things, we have life groups and Bible study groups and times small groups because you need to be around other believers as much as possible and to build intimate enough relationships with them that you can confess your sins to them. Hello? You say, I only confess my sins to God. Confess your faults one to another. Why do we need to do that? Because we need to be able to daily admit our faults. I'm thankful that I'm married to a woman that's a Christian, that I can say to her, I'm failing in this capacity. And that she can help me. She can minister to me and she can pray with me. Listen, that's what we need. We need each other. I'm glad this week. I sat down with several men this week and said, I'm struggling with this. I need prayer. I need support. I need help. Do you have that in your life? That's what the church is for, by the way. It's a community of believers that are edifying and encourage one another, yes, in their faults and failures, but they're helping to pick each other up, to build each other up, to follow the Lord. Not to measure each other, but to minister to each other. A lot of times we come together to measure each other instead of minister to each other. By the way, don't let hypocrisy and the lack of what other people are doing keep you from doing what's right. We need believers to say, no, I'm going to do what's right in the church regardless of whether there's a majority doing it. I'm not going to use what other people do as a, as a reason to excuse myself from the community of believers that God has called me to. I'm going to get involved and involved in such a way that there are people that I can talk to about my sins. And I, I'm not talking about getting in the booth and confessing your sins to me like a priest. I'm talking about where we get around each other and we say, I'm struggling with pride. I'm struggling with lust.'" I'm struggling with greed. I'm struggling with this. And we can talk to each other. Are you with me? We need each other. We need each other. Intimate fellowship is the best way to ensure the integrity of our inner and outer lives. So many people in the world have friendships that if people knew who they were, really in their hearts, they wouldn't have those friends. Listen, I hope that I could be honest and transparent with you, and you would still love me, and I could still love you. We could say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I have this fault. I have this failing. We're not perfect. We are not trying to be, in a sense, what we're not. We're not trying to perform in such a way that, that evokes some kind of uh, feeling of, oh, these people are perfect. You, you shouldn't come into the church and have this feeling of everybody around me is perfect. If you understand and see that people aren't, that's an opportunity for us to minister to each other. Lone Ranger Christianity is what must be avoided. Samson is notable for his aloneness. Not only does he not take any advice, he never works with others, he never serves with others, he never builds teams, he's a one-man wrecking crew. And that, that is a prescription for focusing on outward impressiveness while suffering from internal disintegration. A loner mentality is a prescription for focusing on outward impressiveness while suffering from internal disintegration. Since no one is close enough to see our spiritual lives or to encourage and challenge us about it, we need each other. We need the community of the church. What does that mean for you today? Get involved. Don't spectate. Get involved. Get involved with people. We don't have lunch fellowships because it saves us money. We don't have lunch fellowships because we don't have anything else to do. We're doing these things because we want you to know each other in such a way that you... You befriend other believers who are able to encourage you in your walk with God. How many know that out there you're not going to get any encouragement to follow God? We're all being influenced to follow our own impulses and our own flesh and our own desires. But together, listen church, we can encourage one another not to walk in the impulses of our flesh, but in the fullness of the Spirit of God. Samson was a failure in this regard. May we not be these failures as we have enough instruction, as we've been given, listen, advantages, if you've received the gift of God's Spirit, may we grow in maturity in the fruit of God's Spirit. Because there's a difference between gifts and fruit. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org.